Today on the programme, we're going straight indeed to the Thornish to Neil Martin very shortly about that Northern Ireland protocol, how to get that over the line, how it got over the line. Today also we're going to that situation in relation to the U-turn when it comes to doing two exams in fifth year. Today also we're looking and speaking about uh, the Minister's efforts in relation to... GSK and also on today's programme we're looking and speaking with Cree in relation to heart and uh, the whole education process there. That and more between now and 12 midday. Comment lines are open on 091 and you can also WhatsApp us to 086 38 33 It's Tuesday. Good morning. Well, there's a pep in our step indeed in relation to yesterday's announcement of a positive outcome in the negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol between the EU and the UK. And the Thornish Simeon Martin joins us. He's been at the coalface on this with his colleagues for quite some time. And uh, Thornish, good morning to you. Can you hear me all right there? Thornish, can you hear me okay there? Seem to have a slight problem with that line uh, coming into us uh, there. Just let's uh, figure another line. Uh, today. Let me just see, can I just reset here very quickly? This is this is technology at its best uh, today, so let me just take again. And um, no, I don't seem to have... Can we try and get the Thornister back up again? It's, it's not coming up on line 101 from there. So I'll just try and transfer it over to 102 if I can uh, from there. So anyway, these are just technical issues. Yeah, it's good news. The European Union and Britain finalised a long-awaited agreement uh, to ease the trading issues created by the Northern Ireland Protocol during a summit at Windsor yesterday. A huge amount of work has gone into this on all sides, I have to say, today. A massive amount of work has gone into it on all sides. And um, again, it's um, good for the country, it's good for the UK, it's good for Europe, it's good for the country as well. And uh, we're hopefully going indeed uh, to Michael Martin uh, very shortly. I just don't know what happened to that line just there. It came up as 105 instead of 101. These are all just technical issues indeed, uh, but I uh, don't know why it came up on that. But let me just see. Can we just uh, transfer it in from there? Don't forget, we'll see. Can we go from there? And uh, Thornton, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for joining us. Apologies about the delay in getting to you. Congratulations to you and your colleagues. Uh, this is a huge move forward. And again, the negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol between the EU and the UK is most welcome. Absolutely. I think it's a very welcome development. Uh, I think it signals uh, a new partnership relationship between the United Kingdom and the European Union, which is in all our interests. I think it also creates the opportunity to reset the British-Irish relationship. And thirdly, uh, we would hope now that it paves the way for the restoration of the uh, institutions of the Good Friday Agreement, the convening of the Assembly, the Executive, the North South Ministerial Council. Obviously, parties will have to take time to uh, read the um, documentation because it's been a very exhaustive uh, negotiation process over the last three to four months um, particularly uh, between the you know the UK negotiating team yeah. and, and Maris Sefcovic's team in the commission and I met with Maris again last Sunday week talked about, talking to him over the weekend I mean they're exhausted in terms of the degree of input here because people generally underestimate the complexity of issues around customs um, SPS animal health food uh, and the single market and how the single market relates to countries who are no longer in the single market and obviously Brexit had a particular application to Northern Ireland because of the Good Friday Agreement and the unique position of Northern Ireland so I think what we have now 
is a much more simplified um, set of trading arrangements which allows Northern Ireland in essence to have a free flow of goods from uh, the UK into Northern Ireland while also having access to the European Union single market which will position Northern Ireland industry and Northern Ireland business in a very positive uh, way for the future. And it will also give them certainty and stability in terms of that future economically, which I think is important. Um, And we need political stability and certainty now. Will everybody come on board? I mean, I was reading indeed uh, some of the the, the information coming out that some have agreed that this is brilliant. Most parties have agreed. But will, will... the key people who have held this up and indeed what's going on in Northern Ireland, um, will they come on board eventually? And is this politics that they need time just to take this in and soak it in? Well, to be fair, we're talking about 400 pages of documents here. Yeah. Um, So I think it is fair that that people would um, have some time to to examine those. Um, It's very clear to me that it's comprehensive. Uh, I I would obviously have known this, but there's a, almost all, all of the issues that have been raised over the last number of years by politicians in Northern Ireland of all parties, and particularly from, from the unionist perspective. And I think we did acknowledge uh, over the last year or two that there, there were legitimate issues that were raised. Um, and I think these have been responded to, particularly in terms of, if you remember when all, the, all of this started, people were concerned about pets coming from Great Britain into yeah. Northern Ireland, people were concerned about consumer goods. Uh, on the shelves of supermarkets in Northern Ireland. The bottom line now is that uh, all food goods, all goods basically that are on the shelves of uh, supermarkets in Great Britain will be on the shelves of supermarkets in Northern Ireland. All medicines uh, that are available in Britain will be available in Northern Ireland at the same time and under the same uh, standards and rules. Um, And uh, there have been movement on the VAT issue significantly um, and also in in, in terms of state aid um, and all of those issues relating to pets and that. So on all that trading front, it's very, very comprehensive. And um, uh, and then there are mechanisms by which the political system in Northern Ireland can input in in advance, in respect of any new EU regulations coming downstream uh, that might have uh, an impact on Northern Ireland. Um, and I think that's positive as well. Um, so you know, I, I would be hopeful. But again, it's a matter for the, the DUP. It's a matter for the parties in terms of the disagreement. But I think what parallel with that, though, there is a, a real need and objectively looking at it, when people vote in an election, they expect their public representatives to go into Parliament, or Mm. in this case, to convene an assembly and to elect the government, because the people of Northern Ireland, uh, similar to ourselves, have the daily concerns of cost of living, housing, health, education, uh, to deal with, and they need a working assembly and, and a working executive to deal with those issues in respect of Northern Ireland. Can I go back to the politics issue on this one? Politics is politics has been here for a long, long time. Um, can politics be left aside when considering the 400 pages for the good of the North of Ireland, the South of Ireland, and the relationship between the UK and Europe? Well, over the last number of months, I've met with all of the political parties in Northern Ireland on a, uh, a number of times, and I've also obviously spoken to the party leaders by phone. I, I accept their bona fides, all of their bona fides, in respect of wanting to get politics restored in Northern Ireland. I think there were legitimate issues around the protocol. I don't think mm-hmm. that in itself justified justified not having the Assembly convened. My, my view has been consistent over the last decade. I believe when elections happen, the Assembly should be convened and previous times other parties um, collapsed the, the Assembly. And I don't think that's a, a proper mechanism to, to, at all to, to, to use in times of difficulty with particular issues. But leaving that aside, um, I think legitimate issues were raised in respect to the operation of the protocol. 
my sense is that they've been comprehensively dealt with. Um, and um, obviously, you know, there, there's politics everywhere. Um, and we saw attempts over the weekend in the UK, but they don't seem to have really gained critical mass in terms of endeavouring to undermine the, the British Prime Minister's position or uh, the, the British government's position. I think what, what has happened here is that trust has built up between the UK and the EU. Yeah. Uh, I think Rishi Sunak wanted and preferred a, a negotiated resolution. Once you have goodwill, and once I've always said this over the last two and a half years, if there's a will to get a, a, a resolution, uh, then a resolution can be found. I think also the background, given that the world is facing increased polarization geopolitically, we have a war in Ukraine, which has consequences for the energy crisis and energy price hikes. You have a real climate change crisis. Uh, we have migration, uh, very significant migration issues. So across Europe, there's a view that those countries that believe in a rules-based multilateral order internationally should be you know, in harmony with each other. And hence, European Union leaders want a constructive relationship with the United Kingdom. And likewise, the United Kingdom wants a, a constructive relationship with Europe because it's in its interests um, to have such a relationship. I think that's the vital background to the agreements that we currently have. Uh, and I think we have, um, you know, we have strong engagement with the current British government on a number of issues. We don't see eye to eye on all issues. But the engagement has been um, uh, one of uh, genuine uh, willingness to try and deal with issues and resolve issues. Uh, and I think th- there is opportunities here now to, to, to really turn a corner. I read a document over the weekend from the British Irish Chamber of Commerce in Dublin where they're on both sides indeed and uh, they were very positive about it and again they represent those that are trading on both sides uh, of uh, the border as well. Do you reckon the Assembly will get up and running sooner rather than later once the 400 pages have been digested and the concerns have been addressed? Well, I, I would hope so. Um, but again, I don't want to, like, that, that is a matter for the parties concerned. Yeah. Um, but I think there is a need. I think the people's decision in the last election, in assembly election, needs to be vindicated through the election of a first minister and a deputy first yeah. minister and an executive. And um, I think that that's very important. You've, you, you've made a very good, important point yourself there in respect of the, the people who actually have to work all these agreements. You know, the businesses, the SMEs, uh, the food industry, the manufacturing industry. Mm. And I would have met them well over uh, two years ago at first, and I've met them on a, an ongoing basis, the, Bre- the, Bre- the Brexit Business Working Group in the north. They're very practical, and Maros Sefcovic met them as well at our request. Uh, because sometimes politics can, you know, we, we think we know the nuts and bolts of how it works for people on the ground in industry, but we don't know all the nuts and bolts. And I was struck when the legislation was passed, or was published by the British government in respect to the protocol. Uh, the significant opposition actually came from industry and businesses who said this won't work in mm. the marketplace. Um, and so the food industry needs integrity in the food chain from beginning to end. Uh, manufacturing has done well in the last number of years in Northern Ireland because of having access to the single market and the GB market. There was an issue around consumer goods yeah. um, and uh, what, what would turn up in shelves, parcels, pets, uh, and a range of issues like that. They have uh, been resolved now. Uh, medicines as well was an issue that was being raised consistently. There had been an agreement on those. What's, what, has ha- what is happening now is even a stronger and more definitive long-term agreement. Mm-hmm. So I do think we have a sustainable basis here that I think industry and business will be pleased with because it gives them certainty into the future. And as you know, in business and industry and jobs, certainty is a prerequisite for inward investment. And talking to Joe Kennedy when I was in Washington three weeks ago, 
they were all watching this. Joe Kennedy wants to get involved in terms of the economic development of Northern Ireland on behalf of the U.S. government. They stand ready to help in terms of bringing more investment into the north of Ireland. Um, the, U- the European Union, and Mara Sefigic has said this to me, in the context of the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, that they stand ready to try and um, help with, with, with investment and development, as, of course, the U.K. government and the Irish government do. So I think in the context of the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, there's a real opportunity here, whilst yeah. looking back and saluting the leadership of those who t- designed the agreement in 25 years ago, also to look ahead and create a new future for the younger generations uh, in Northern Ireland and on the island of Ireland. And we have that duty, but I mean, there's quite a bit of fear around that that fear now has been, uh, has been cleared indeed. And hopefully with the uh, assembly getting up and running, we can get the real review uh, for the rest of Ireland indeed, uh, dealt with as well. Yes. There's, a, there's a lot of people calling for that right now as well. Yeah, there's a lot of issues like that that have been in 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 in, in, in limbo or in, uh, yeah, limbo is good. Yeah, I mean that rail review is very important, um, but we do need an executive up and running. Uh, sort of, it's a joint uh, exercise by the executive and the Irish government, and uh, and it has a lot of implications for the west of Ireland, for the northwest, for the entire island, uh, in terms of how we map out our public transport, rail transport in particular, future, uh, and those are the kind of issues that have been left hanging there, if you like, in the mm-hmm. absence of an executive. Uh, and I think there's huge potential to, to be on tap. I mean, we need consistency in Northern Ireland politics. We need stability so that people can get on and work for those who elected them. It's a good day for the island of Ireland. Uh, Thornstead, thank you, Dee, for taking uh, time out of a busy schedule and joining us today. Thornstead, Michal Martin, it's a positive day. It really and truly is. And well done to all uh, who were part of that uh, right through. It's great to come with a solution. Uh, but the amount of work that's gone in behind the scenes by the Thornish, the, the, the Taoiseach and many others, uh, to get this solution, it just didn't happen overnight. The amount of work that's gone in has been tremendous. Well done to all. And it just shows when they all pull together, we can get stuff over the line just like this. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie. A very good morning to you. Welcome into today's programme. Well, over the last couple of weeks, I've bumped into, because of various situations, I've found myself in uh, with my mom and her, her kind of lengthy passing. Uh, but I've come across so many people that have been affected by the mother and baby home. And I've met them, met them at the funeral, met them at mass. Met, met, I met them. Um, we had an anniversary mass for Joan's mom, indeed, uh, on the 19th. It was Sunday the 19th in the Yogi's. And a lady came up to me and she said that she was affected uh, by mother and baby homes. So many people that I've spoken to have been affected. And yet when I read that Glaxo's uh, Smith Klein have pushed back repeatedly against demands to pay reparations for clinical trials on mother and baby home children after the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman, urged the drug company to accept corporate responsibility for the way the tests were carried out. I want you to pause for one second on that statement for the way the tests were carried out. So they had no option. There was no option for the children in question. Uh, Deputy Dennis Nocton joins me uh, on the line today. Dennis, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. It's quite upsetting because I, I met some people recently who I didn't know were part of the mother and baby home who are in, not in a very good position. And then GlaxoSmithKline that are making so much money are not just prepared to cooperate. 
Yes, and this is uh, an article or a series of articles was published in the Irish Independent or the Irish Times yesterday by yeah. Arthur Beasley, uh, where he's got access to the departmental records, and it seems now that the Department of Children has effectively thrown in the towel on trying to uh, get uh, Galaxo Smith Klein to acknowledge uh, their role in relation to uh, the series of vaccine trials that took place and uh, get some form of acknowledgement in terms of of compensation and this is an issue that I've raised on the floor of the doll on numerous occasions going back 20 years ago when I was first raising these vaccine trial uh, issues and during the course of the debate uh, on the mother and baby home uh, issue I specifically highlighted uh, the issue of the vaccine trials uh, where a number of different uh, elements of the state had questions to answer including uh, Galaxo uh, Smith Klein and it seems now that Galaxo Smith Klein are effectively washing their hands saying that this was the responsibility of the individual researchers uh, that were involved in the investigations at the time the vaccine trials at the time rather than the, the company as a whole um, but as I pointed out in the doll there was a culture within uh, the predecessor of, of GlaxoSmithKline, uh, and I specifically named uh, Dr. Berland uh, within the organization, uh, who uh, was advising researchers how they could uh, approach uh, the trials in Ireland to get around uh, the ethical issues of consent uh, that were required, because trials that were happening here in Ireland in mother and baby homes could not have happened in the UK. And in fact, when they did publish some of the scientific research from those trials that took place both in the UK and in Nigeria, they made specific reference to the legal consent that was obtained. However, in relation to the published research that they produced regarding the Irish trials, there was absolutely no reference uh, to the consent because they never got it, because the Department of Health had refused to give it, but yet the trials went on. But can I ask you, just can you clarify before I make my next statement to you, there was no legal consent, was there? There was uh, a mechanism where... What form of uh, legal consent? If, if, the, if the children were in the mother and baby home and the parents were not available to give the consent, are you saying that the guardians at the time, the, the, the religious orders, gave consent for such trials? They were supposed to to give consent uh, for such trials. They were also supposed to get approval from the state uh, in relation to such trials. That approval from the state, looking at the records that were published on the Mother and Baby Home report, that consent was not forthcoming from the state, and yet the trials went ahead. Okay. Now, in some instances, yes, there was consent provided. There was consent provided from uh, some of the parents and from the institution itself. But in others, there is no record of that, and there was explicit refusal by the Department of Health to have such trials carried out in some of those mother and baby homes, and yet this still went ahead. But can I go back then to what I was going to say to you, and I, we'll, we'll come back to legal consent in a moment. And I know it's statute barred because it's so long ago, but such trials were really an assault on the children in question, a, a full frontal assault. And also, I mean, we would now refer to it as for the child abuse that they went through. And now they're going through the fact that they can't get payment 
and they're, if you go back a little further, um, the orders, some of the orders in question are refusing to financially support as well. So these people are still getting constantly kicked. Well, a couple of issues there. First of all, yes, these children, and what I said in the floor of the doll at the time, were, were effectively human pincushions. They had... Uh, numbers of vaccine uh, doses administered to them. They had blood drawn on a regular basis. Uh, and the point that I made on the floor of the doll was, you know, if there were both children in institutions involved in the trials and there were also children in the community involved in the trials. Now, the children in the institutions were given the trial vaccine. The ones in the community were not given the trial vaccine. But I asked the question, were th was the blood being drawn from, from those children on such a regular basis as it was in the children in the institutions? And I know for a fact that that wasn't the case uh, in relation to it, but they had easy access to these children. There was question marks over the issue of consent. Now, the other issue is that a lot of the people involved in these trials to this day do not know that they were involved in the trial. So it's not even a case of, of compensation. They don't know that they were involved in the trials. And one of the things that I asked that would be carried out is that each of those individuals would be identified, that there would be a full health review of each of those individuals to see, did any of these um, test vaccines have any impact on their health uh, throughout uh, their lifetime? It would be an interesting piece of scientific research, but more importantly, it would at least provide some answers uh, okay. to the victims that were involved in these trials where in a lot of cases there was not consent obtained. And one of the interesting things in yesterday's report in the Irish Times uh, from uh, in, by Arthur Beasley was that uh, Galaxa Smith Klein uh, were asked would they make contact with the individuals involved in the trial. And their response uh, is uh, that contacting individuals without prior consent um, with unsolicited information, there was an ethical issue uh, in relation to that. Now, surely to God, there was an ethical issue in carrying out and administering trial vaccines to children without any consent. Mm. And yet here we are, decades later, we're still not prepared to let these people know that they're even involved in these trials. Because of the, in commas, consent that was given by whomever, was there a payment made to the institutions that were caring for these children uh, for the use of the children in question? We don't uh, know if there was uh, a payment made. There isn't any evidence in the records. Uh, there isn't, in a lot of cases, any records of consent either in it, even from uh, the institutions. But you would believe that if uh, doctors were let in on a regular basis, that there must have been uh, some consent. But there is a question mark uh, over that. In some institutions, in fairness, uh, and I think Pelletstown off the top of my head is one of them, where they actively sought the consent of uh, the uh, mothers or the next of kin of the babies involved in uh, some of the, the trials. Uh, so it was sought in some instances, it wasn't in others. Now, in terms of of, of remuneration, I do know that there, there was uh, remuneration provided to some of the researchers uh, in the form of either grants uh, for the laboratories or the upgrading of equipment. Whether there was actually a financial payment paid directly to them, there isn't any evidence of that. 
But remember, Keith, they didn't need a financial payment because by carrying out this research, they were producing uh, scientific papers that were being published. So mm-hmm. that improved uh, their uh, reputation and their ability uh, to progress in their career and gain promotion. Uh, so inadvertently, they were definitely benefiting uh, from this. Whether they directly benefit financially or not, there's no evidence to say that. So effectively what you're saying to me is those involved in this, uh, they enhanced their uh, reputation uh, by assaulting the children in question and taking taking advantage of them, whether they had consent or not. Well, look, the scientific papers that were published on this are very clear. If you look at what happened with the trials in the UK, no, no, in I Nigeria, accept, I accept, the, I accept very what you're saying about the trials that the there. Consent was obtained. There is no evidence of that in relation to the scientific papers that were published on the Irish trials. What about the unfortunate people that are not getting anything out of this and they were, I hate using the word guinea pigs, but they were dehumanised and guinea pigs in this regard and had no control over it because they were being controlled uh, by the institution in question? Yes, and it's not just that, that there is no formal acknowledgement from GlaxoSmithKline in terms of some contribution towards uh, a redress scheme. But in many, many instances, these people today do not know that they were involved in these vaccine trials, even though GlaxoSmithKline does have records, does have names in relation to the children. uh, They have made no effort to make contact with these people. I mean, GSK also have to have... Uh, have to be very cognizant of their shareholders and all of that as well. I mean, they've got a duty of care to them. They've got a duty of care. Uh, and anybody that you're talking to in GSK now would not have been around when all of this was going on. And yet they have to protect the company as well. So it's 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 a two-way street on this. It is a two-way street. Um, you know, the uh, GSK are making the point that these were uh, predecessor uh, companies yeah. to the establishment of uh, GSK uh, and that's the argument that they're making in their defence. We are going back to the 1960s and 1970s. But as I say, look, I've raised this uh, in the doll in the uh, early part of the 2000s. There was a very detailed report produced at the time in relation to the vaccine trials. It led to a commission of inquiry specifically looking at the vaccine trials, which uh, as a result of, of a court challenge by uh, Dr. Irene Hillary at the time, the late uh, Irene Hillary, uh, that uh, did not proceed those records were then handed back to the the nuns and uh, to the companies involved. Uh, and the only information that we now have is what is in the Mother and Baby Home report. But as I say, you know, there's two aspects to this in terms of GlaxoSmithKline at this point in time. One is they should be trying to make an effort to reach out to the people that were involved in these trials because many of them still do not know today. Uh, And secondly, they should, I believe, uh, be making a contribution towards uh, the redress scheme based on the very serious questions that I raised regarding the company and its management of these trials on the floor of the doll. Yeah, but they also have to manage expectations because if they make contact with, um, if GSK make contact with some of the um, individuals in question, there'll be an expectation is there a major payout coming out. Uh, of that, so they have to manage all of those as well. It's a, it's a difficult but one. But look, the, the, the reality is, Keith, there was no consent obtained. Uh, these were line. vaccine trials, That's or, or uh, line, yeah. 
trial vaccines that were used in the mother and baby homes, these were not the same vaccines that were given to children in the community at that time that were also involved okay. uh, in trials. So these were experimental vaccines that never reached uh, market. There is a risk, it may be a small risk, that someone was adversely affected by this and they deserve and have a right Absolutely. to know uh, if they were impacted by this. Can I just ask you very quickly, I was just reading, um, I think it was the Times over the weekend as well, uh, where married women were also included in this redress scheme. Yes, th th there is uh, an issue there. There's a number of issues in relation to this uh, redress scheme. Uh, a number of us uh, locally uh, voted against its passage uh, through the Dáil last Wednesday uh, because of the concerns that we have uh, regarding the exclusion of, of some cohorts uh, of, of women uh, from this scheme, both in terms of married women and in terms of the length of time either the, the adult or uh, the baby spent uh, okay. in well, uh, the mother and baby well, home. Take, take me through, and briefly if you don't mind, uh, why would a, a married mother end up in the mother and baby home? Look, I, I, I wouldn't be the expert in relation to, to that end of the issues. Uh, the focus I've had in relation to all of this issue has been on the, the vaccine trials that have been highlighting yeah, no, no, uh, for no. the last uh, 20 have, years. You fought the good fight for them and uh, with them as well. Thanks for joining us uh, today. Uh, Dennis, uh, Deputy Dennis Nocton, thank you for joining us today. Um, if anybody can demystify that for me as to why married women were in, in, included in it, there has to be there has to be uh, an explanation for that. Comment lines open today, by the way, with thanks to Rationale. Windows 086 38 33 55 3 today. That's uh, 086 38 33 55 3. Keith, if this deal goes through, uh, will the six counties be under Irish rule, uh, bringing them nearer to being Irish? No, is the answer there. The short answer is no. Now, let's take a short commercial break. We're back just after these 9.42 on this Tuesday morning. We're with you until 12 midday. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Click and Collect allows you to collect your order whenever suits you. Hey, very good morning to you. Welcome into today's uh, programme. The comment lines are all open if you want to get through to us now. Uh, gaps in cardiovascular care is contributing to over 9,000 people uh, per year indeed. It's 9,000 people who pass away uh, due to uh, gaps in cardiovascular care. I want to go to the um, project leader, CEO of uh, Cree, the West Warren Cardiology and uh, Stroke Foundation and the National Institute for Prevention of Cardiovascular Health because today uh, they've published um, a report indeed and uh, which is quite staggering but Neil Johnson joins me on the line today. Neil, good morning to you. Good morning, Keith. Thanks for joining us uh, today. That figure, that headline figure of 9,000 people per annum uh, die because of the gaps. You've identified the gaps, though. Well, I think um, the number of 9,000 is uh, a number that, unfortunately, uh, has been fairly fairly steady for um, a large number of years. And, um, and that number refers to the people who die from cardiovascular disease uh, heart disease and stroke. And there's a position paper or report being published today which was initiated by the National Institute for Prevention and Cardiovascular Health, which was founded by Cree in Galway. And it points out that um, in our healthcare system, there are many gaps 
along the disease continuum where preventive measures uh, need to be taken so that we can reduce the burden of cardiovascular disease but on the individual and of course on society and we can therefore uh, reduce the number of deaths because the the interesting thing is that of those large number it's estimated that up to 80 percent of uh, premature cardiovascular disease can be prevented. So can I just take you through just I want to kind of demystify this can you give me a practical example is it that people are not going to get checked is it that the waiting lists are too long to see a cardiologist uh, is it that medication for whatever is cholesterol and or otherwise is not being dealt with that they're not being assessed just give me practical examples of where the gaps are. Yeah well I think it, well, first of all, it's obviously a complex issue. It's not, yes. it's not as simple as we're not doing this, we're not doing that. If you first of all take the, the, the number that you mentioned, 9,000 deaths, right? Um, if you look at any, I'm, I'm 30 years working in this space, and if you look at any publication in the last 30 years around cardiovascular disease, the first sentence is cardiovascular disease is the biggest cause of death uh, and disability in Ireland, in Europe, in the world, or whatever. So, in, for some strange reason, we seem to accept that cardiovascular disease is something that happens, and really, you know, we just have to get on with it. And when you look at the healthcare response to it, the investment is all on the acute care. It's all about when you present with symptoms, when you are in hospital, when you're sick or you're at death's door. And we've made huge strides in that regard, and the care um, is now mm. second to none, and we have a great success rate in saving lives. But actually, uh, we need to step back from this and rethink our thinking on cardiovascular disease and start to act on the fact that the vast majority of these deaths are preventable. So we need to start doing things that uh, are much earlier in the life course and that can have... Uh, real impact. For example, if you take stroke, um, the cause of the most devastating stroke, for example, the one that the stroke that puts you in a nursing home, uh, a large proportion of those strokes are caused by an irregular caused by an irregular heart rhythm called atrial fibrillation. Now, speak to doctors who work in the stroke field, and they'll tell you that the sad part of their work is seeing somebody with a stroke caused by undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. So how do you find atrial fibrillation? Well, the first step to finding atrial fibrillation is actually a pulse check. Mm. A pulse check that, that uh, is indicative of um, an, an irregular cardio, cardiac rhythm. And so there's a lot of cardiac problems that can be detected with low-cost interventions at a much earlier stage. For example, high blood pressure, single biggest cause of heart attack, or not single biggest cause, but major contributor to heart attack and stroke. How do, you, how do you know if somebody's high blood pressure? Well, you check it, and you know yourself how easy it is to take yeah. a, a blood pressure check. We did a survey in Mayo earlier this year, and we found that 75% of the population over the age of 55 that we surveyed thought that their heart health was in good order. Yet when you looked at their risk factors, like high blood pressure, we found that half of those that... Uh, were surveyed had high blood pressure, and of those, half of those um, were uh, not managed to target. In other words, they weren't achieving the targets. So there's an element of finding the condition, treating the condition, and then 
at the personal level taking control of that condition and, and managing it. But I suppose the key message we're trying to say here is that we need to be looking for um, these known cardiac conditions at a much earlier stage. Heart, heart uh, valve disease, for example, common uh, among those over a certain age, typically over yeah. 75. You can find that by listening to the heart with a stethoscope. But is that happening? Why isn't it happening? There are lots of reasons. So, but the, but the overriding point, I would say, Keith, is this, that 9,000 people every year dying from cardiovascular disease, and at the level of, if you like, government and, and, and policy, there is no strategy. There is no cardiovascular health strategy in Ireland. The last strategy, we had two strategies. last strategy expired in 2019. Um, it hasn't been renewed. It wasn't evaluated. And if I draw the comparison, say, for example, to road safety, we're now in the fifth strategy for road safety. Yeah. There were 155 deaths on Irish roads last year. Look at the commitment there is at government, at policy level, to, to saving lives on roads, and rightly so. Mm. Um, but, you know, you compare Pains that... Pains in significance when it goes to the 9,000 deaths yeah, yeah. that are largely preventable. We have no strategy. We've no designated authority with real okay. clout. We've no dedicated resource. So we're not taking it seriously. That's the bottom line. I came across somebody recently who had been diagnosed with that atrial uh, fibrillation. And uh, again, they, they bought some um, gizmo uh, that's from Kerry, 140 or something, and they can take their own ECG on an ongoing basis and send it back in to uh, your colleagues in the hospital there and they can read them from there. So... Again, it's be, once it's identified, it can be treated with medication otherwise, uh, but there's ways of monitoring it as well. It's just, I suppose it's manning up to the problem that may be there, going to the GP, getting checked, taking it seriously, and not waiting for the blue light to come to bring you in when you think you've had a stroke and or otherwise. Uh, do so 10, 15, 20 years before that. Yeah, I mean, it, it really boils down to priority and policy. Yeah. So, you know, we all went through covid we saw how quickly things that we thought were absolutely unimaginable in the healthcare system. We saw how things were changed and transformed to respond to that. It's almost as if we're um, we're blind to the fact that 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 such such a disease burden, um, which is largely preventable, is there, and we just we're just getting on with it. But in actual fact, these are real people. We all know, if you ask anybody, do you know somebody in your family who has been affected by heart disease or stroke? They, we all have those sad stories. Mm. So when you know the causes, you know the risk factors. And by and large, we actually have the treatments. And the earlier you treat and intervene, the greater the, the, the likelihood of success and reduced burden. But what we need is, at the highest level, first of all, an actual commitment to this to say, you know, like road safety, the, the road safety um, authority have a target of reducing deaths on the road by 50% in the coming years. There's no such target when it comes to cardiovascular disease. There's no plan. There's no clear plan as to how we're going to reduce cardiovascular disease. And that's no disrespect to all our healthcare professionals. It's just that we're, there isn't joined up thinking and there isn't a clear strategy. Let's get them joined up. Again, if you want to find out more about Cree, 0915443100, or if you want to make a donation as well. But first port to call, um, Neil Johnson this morning would be GP, if you've got a concern, or go for the checkup, 
or go and get checked. Don't wait for the blue lights to come, uh, whenever that might be. Uh, Neil, thanks for joining us uh, today on the programme and uh, keep strong. That's uh, Neil Johnson joining us there, Chief Executive of Cree, the West Ireland Cardiology Foundation. And indeed, that report is available online. And we're going to come back to it and do more on that because he's dead right. We just need to take control of our own situation, our own health. Uh, I have to say I'm good at that. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Uh, but I think I'm good at it. Take control of our own health and uh, make sure that we don't give ourselves um, any chance of getting that stroke. I mean, the image that Neil Johnson portrayed about getting a stroke and ending up in a nursing home would be my worst nightmare. It would make me go to the GP every week, 52 weeks of the year to get checked because that would be my worst. No disrespect to nursing homes. I spent a long time, 10 years going in and out of them um, extensively and I just with all due respects to the nicest possible people uh, in those facilities and the operators and otherwise, I certainly would not like to be there. Comment lines open today, 086 38 33 It's 086 38 33 if you want to get in contact with us. You can also call us on 91 And we're going back to the madness uh, that was, by the way, uh, a plan for students to sit the Leaving Cert paper uh, one in fifth year. It has now been revised. The oxygen has got to the brain of the decision makers and they've reversed it. That and more to come between now and midday. Galway Talks, in association with Tesco. Find our award-winning Irish ranges in store and online at tesco.ie.